Welcome to GLAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Rachel, your host for today, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Danny. Hello. And Levi. Hi. We do something a little different every episode, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography, life, and data. Today, let's talk vibes. Picture it. 2023 is coming to a close. The days are growing shorter and the nights are drawing in, in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. And many of us are looking forward to a well-deserved break. It's a holiday vibe. There are other vibes you want to capture, though, for this very special GLAD holiday episode. And they have to do with cities and the bad rap they seem to be getting from every direction these days, I think. (laughs) Pandemic recovery, housing shortages, cost of living challenges, and that's just a few. So how are we feeling about cities these days? To answer this pressing question, Danny, Levi, and I are joined in our virtual studio by three fabulous guests for today's episode. Elizabeth Delmel. Hello. Uzke Erner. Hi. And John Reeds. Hello. Yeah, and before we jump in on the actual vibe dissection of the uh, episode today, let's hear a little bit more about our three guests in the podcast, who you are, where you come from, what's your uh, credentials for being speaking about City Vibes on December 23. Elizabeth, do you want to jump in first? Sure. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Delmel. I'm an associate professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of Pennsylvania, which is located in a fantastic city of Philadelphia in the U.S. Um, I'm kind of a combination of urban transportation geographer, and I've always done things on the quantitative side from GIS to quantitative methods to now what would be branded as urban analytics is kind of my jive. And I'm here to talk all things positive about cities. <laughs> so I feel like cities Good. are great. I just moved to Philadelphia two years ago. Um, it is a thriving and vibrant city in case you've never visited. Um, I don't think it gets quite at the rap that it should. I think it, it's not as appreciated as cool as it is. Um, before coming to Philadelphia, we spent one year living in another great city in, on a sabbatical in The Hague and also traveled up to Amsterdam a lot and traveled throughout Europe through all of those fantastic cities. Um, and before that, I spent about oh, 10 years or so living in a different type of city, um, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where we lived more in the suburbs. And I would say that categorically, Living in a city brings me more joy. I have more opportunities <laughs> for interaction and for experiencing new things and for these, I don't know, just tiny moments where of joy. And so I've been seeking out these tiny moments of joy and I feel like there are many more of them when I'm not sitting in a car, in traffic, driving everywhere. I just appreciate all of these little things. So. I am that voice of positivity. Excellent. I, th- I have a sense that the uh, cheerleading team is going to need members, so I'm glad to, to hear that. I'm also on that on that team, by the way. Uh, so I'm glad to hear I'm not I'm not in, on my own. Um, Ozge, you want to jo- go in? Sure. Um, um, hi, I'm Ozge. Um, I am an associate professor in spatial economics and real estate at the University of Cambridge uh, at a department called Department of Land Economy. We are a bunch of uh, geographers, planners, economists, lawyers, trying to do city things. <laughs> um, I am born and raised in Turkey. Um, so my hometown is Ankara. I then studied in Istanbul, 
in my early 20s, I moved to uh, Sweden uh, and spent most of my adulthood there. So that's why I, I always say I'm uh, Turkish by birth, Swedish by conviction. I was counting before the podcast how many cities I ended up, uh, and it's about 10. Uh, so my general vibe about cities is that I love some of them and uh, not so much the others. <laughs> and happy to, dis- happy to discuss what aspects of cities we appreciate more than others um, with you guys. Thanks thanks for inviting. Super. Some undecided voters on cheerleader or, or doomers uh, for the team. <laughs> well, I'm sensing a theme that some are good and some are bad, yeah. sounds like. <laughs> and, uh, let's wrap up with John. Yeah, hi, uh, I'm John Reeds. I'm an associate professor of spatial data science uh, at the Center for Advanced Spatial Analysis, or CASA, at UCL. And I mean, in terms of background, I have lived in, to keep it short, Toronto, Turin, Italy, New York, and London for the past 21 years now, something like that. My sort of academic background is I did a, you know, as you do, I did a bachelor's degree in literature, uh, and then an MPhil PhD in planning uh, with Peter Hall. And I got to say, a lot of what I'm going to say is really influenced uh, by him for reasons that I'll I'll touch on later. And then mainly what I'm going to be drawing on shamelessly, because I feel like I've had no time to do reading since I became head of department, is a book that I co-authored with a strategic planner named Martin Crookston, uh, which came out in the middle of the pandemic called Why Face-to-Face Still Matters. So um, obviously I'm in the pro-cities camp for reasons that I'll get into, but I also, uh, I think, inferring some of the things that Rachel might be about to say about why cities might suck, I think there are challenges ahead and and that they're not trivial, but I don't think they're the fault of cities. Let, let's start with a, a bit of a sort of a quick brief on on where we how we're feeling about cities. It's the end of 2023 and we could look at 23 and, and maybe you can draw from that, but perhaps we can look at, a, you know, the decade, uh, how the 2020s are going. And, and there was a couple of uh, hiccups for, for cities. Uh, so... Feel free to draw in as as you wish, but what what are your current feelings um, about cities? I, I might actually start chipping in with mine. With I, I finished listening to Ed Glazer's latest book. I don't know if you've uh, listened to it recently, but Ed Glazer is probably the most popular, well, popular, famous. Let's call it famous, not popular. The most famous urban economist. About ten years ago, he wrote a book that was called The Triumph of the City. And last year, he wrote one that was called The Survival of the City. <laughs> in some ways, many, it, it kind of made me think that maybe there's been a bit of a shift in how we, how we view cities and how we approach it. Would you share this these, uh, switch from triumph to, to barely surviving? I, I, I think, and this is very much the kind of Peter Hall type influences, like cities have reinvented themselves dozens of times. They've been hit by pandemics. They've been hit by poverty, by lack of housing, by all of these things again and again and again. And yet somehow here we are still talking about world cities. and everything. So I don't think that much has changed and cities are going to continue. And Rachel wants to come in on that. Sure, <laughs> sure. I mean, cities, I think cities will always be there, but it doesn't mean that they're nice places to live. And so I suppose... And, and, and that they're nice places for most people or, um, yeah, a plurality of people. And so I think my concern isn't that cities are a failure for everyone. 
I love cities. I love going to London. It's that more and more we see this bifurcation between sort of people who have a really awesome time in cities, whether they're visiting cities or living in them, and those that just don't. They don't have seem to have access to any of the benefits of, of cities. And that, to me, seems like something that in 2023 we should care about more than we would have in 1923 or 1823 or any century before when cities were, were, were also thriving. Elizabeth? Yeah, so my question, though, is if cities are not doing well, what places are doing well? Suburbs? Rural places? You know, what is thriving now? Maybe it's just, okay, life is kind of crummy right now. (laughs) Okay. Um, But those at the bottom are not necessarily better off any particular other place either. That's fair. Yeah, Yeah, my my way of presenting this is if you don't like cities, try without them and see how it goes. (laughs) You know, maybe you might be surprised. How about you, Oske, on on your general vibes right now? I'll I'll be the annoying economist here and... uh... And, and, and uh, what, what's the other type of ask. economist? <laughs> oh, yeah. good one. Good one. Uh, so I've been teaching an undergraduate uh, course uh, to first year students. Uh, it's like standard urban economics course. I, I I often split them into groups and start the first lecture by asking them to come up with some definition of what a city is. Uh, so I think so much of what we are discussing right now applies to some cities with a certain scale, with a certain type of hierarchical uh, rearrangement in a region, um, and and some of the things that we complain about cities apply to um, some other cities that are excessively clustered, that are quite distinct in their region, that are not very well connected to other places, where we see a lot of intra-urban inequality and uh, forget about the uh, the, the uh, accessibility within the region these cities sit in. You can hardly make it from one neighborhood to another. Uh, and it's it's very difficult to actually find a place to live, um, a huge affordability crisis, whatnot. So I, I guess one caveat with the type of business we have uh, in, in academia is, is that there's no clear definition for what a city is. Um, and now I am sitting in a city with 16 million official uh, population. Um, I've been uh, in, in Sweden in a city called Jönköping, uh, which is the eighth largest city of that country with uh, barely 100,000 people. And uh, I can tell you that those two are completely different types of places. Uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to remind us all that a city is not a city. <laughs> uh, Levi's been so quiet. We don't even know what team Levi is on. <laughs> we need commitment here, Levi, before things get decided. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting question when you think of like the way that a lot of different forces are are changing people's presence in the city. I think for me, a lot of the people that I know, generally speaking, were finding it difficult to afford living in cities, so they're increasingly getting priced out. Um, but there's also a kind of way that that really benefits them. You know, the ability to work remotely three days a week means that they can engage the city on more of their terms. So I don't know. I, I, I think for me, cities are really like too heterogeneous to give an up or down vote, okay. if that makes sense. Uh, I just think it's so neighborhood driven and so kind of gestalt. It's really difficult, I think. Okay. So cities we like. Can, I, can we just do a round of like cities people like and why? So I miss Brooklyn. <laughs> I always, I think I will miss Brooklyn. And for what? Uh, 
living in Greenpoint was like my favorite urban memory. Um, just the combination of accessibility, the culture, uh, it's, it's really hard to beat. Um, I, and I, I think for the rest of my days, I will miss living in, in North Brooklyn. <laughs> well, maybe not surprisingly, I'm going to do a vote here for Philadelphia. As I said, I've only lived here for two years, but I love riding the train and seeing all kinds of people doing all kinds of things like reading books with pages <laughs> and getting out of the train station and finding the guys selling semi-legal Phillies gear when the Phillies are in the playoffs and everybody wearing their um, you know, Phillies hats and Phillies t-shirts because everybody is behind this team and there's this great spirit um, and buying a shirt from this guy outside the station who then gives me a hug and we have a conversation about my son and I'm going to bring this home to him. Um, having an opportunity for all kinds of choices of things. My kids can go to French school, which they probably couldn't do in a smaller area or couldn't do in a different type of city. Um, all kinds of restaurants. I can order food and it's delivered to me. We have neighbors if I need to borrow a pinch of salt. <laughs> somebody is just a, a millimeter away on either side and somebody has probably got salt that I can borrow. So all of those reasons, I'm, I'm voting for Philly. I'm going to say Liverpool also in, in a similar spirit in the sense that it's, um, yeah, Rachel, I don't, if you're listening to this rather than watching the YouTube recording, Rachel just gave me the the eye roll uh, trademark characteristic of, of the podcast. I, I like Liverpool, and among other things, because I, I live there, but also because it's very livable. It's a city where I can actually afford to live <laughs> in a relatively uh, comfortable situation. And, and it's a... In some ways, it's sort of in England, it feels like it's the constant underdog. But despite, or maybe because of that, it's a tremendously proud city. There's always this joke that I, I love to tell that they did this survey in England about what was the second city. Uh, and everyone in Birmingham said it was Birmingham. And everyone in Manchester said it was Manchester. And and when they asked the people in Liverpool, they said, well, maybe London. Uh, and th that feeling is very much that, the, you know, the... The city it is what it is, but everyone's proud to live there. And I think that that makes up for a lot of the uh, possible shortcomings that may be. John, Özge? It is very, very difficult for me to pick one. I mean, the city I miss most is Ankara, which is my hometown. It's just big enough to enjoy uh, the metropolitan advantages, um, but small enough to have a community um, around which you can uh, cluster. And by community, I mean people with a certain degree of commonality in terms of culture and values, and in, in this case, secular values, of course, in a country that's struggling a lot with those uh, with those divides and cliffs. Um, but the ideal city in my head, whenever I'm talking about one in the in a classroom, is a place like Porto, I think. Uh, it is it is the it is the aesthetics of it it's the nightlife it's the youth it's the tradition but it is also the big city advantages urban amenities um, if you want to live in a modern place you can if you want to stick to your traditional Portuguese setting you can and there's not a major let's say quality of life difference when you are making these kinds of choices in a city like that, um, that that you can allow your individual preferences uh, to be manifested in life, if, if, if that's the right way to put forward uh, in, a, in a city in a city like that uh, to a larger extent. So, yeah, I'll go with Porto, I think. And the wine. <laughs> and the wine, and the wine, <laughs> yes. John? 
Uh, yeah, I, I mean, if, if we go by the number of years I've spent living somewhere, I guess I have to say London. And I do like London, actually, a lot. And, uh, you know, one of, I had some family uh, come visit us a little while ago from, I think it was Plymouth. Yeah, which is a lovely, I want to say town. It's probably a city by English standards. And, and you know, he's like, oh, you know, I, I just couldn't do London. You know, it's so many people. Nobody knows you. And I was, was walking him to the tube basically about every 150 yards. I was like, oh, hey, John, how's it going? And that's not because I'm like the local like mayor on whatever, <laughs> Foursquare or something. It's just the bit of London that I live in is very friendly and very social. And I think London is made up of lots of those little moments if you're not in the areas that have become more vehicles for investment and for um, security and, and those sorts of things. But I guess one thing that's been percolating in the back of my head while I've been talking is I think, you know, again, I, you know, Liverpool, I thought, you know, Liverpool is great and, and Porto is really interesting. I, I think for me, part of what defines like a city is about the connectivity that it has at multiple scales. So there's a local connectivity. It's easy to get around between neighborhoods. There's a kind of regional, then national. And then also you need that international component to really call it like, I mean, I guess that's that's a world city, but you get where I'm going with this. Like you can have something that's a lot of people, but only has a little bit of connectivity at the kind of local level. And we've been to places like that. We're like, oh, this is nice. And, and maybe it is genuinely nice, but it doesn't feel kind of plugged into something bigger, I guess. I'm going to be provocative there. Um, I often say that my favorite size of city is about 300,000 people, which means I love Newcastle. I loved Providence when I lived in Providence. It's big enough to have neighborhoods and all of those amenities. Restaurants, it's easy to get around on foot. And in spite of everything negative that I might have to say about cities in 2023, I have to say this spring I went to Paris and Paris was the nicest I've seen it in 30 years. It was like fantastic. Like the dynamic, the the ethnic diversity, the range of people who were sitting in restaurants, the types of restaurants there were, the sort of range of everything from sort of hyper casual to much less casual. The fact that they've closed all of those stupid highways along the river. So you can actually like now use that space as a non-car driving person to me seemed crazy innovative. And I think I probably have a little bit of a crush on the mayor because I just think it's it's an example of a city where somebody decided here are some things that we're going to do in terms of planning and land use and then just went out and did them. And I go to U.S. cities or I look around the U.K. and all we do is talk about doing things, but we never seem to actually implement them. And here is a world city that actually went out and did those things. So I like Providence. <laughs> I like Newcastle. I like Paris. Um, I love Philadelphia. I loved Washington, D.C. when I lived there. So cities are great. It's just helping them be the best possible city that they can be. That's all. So thinking about that and the best possible city, it seems like we all kind of have different favorites, different reasons why we like our favorites. And I guess um, I wonder if we can reflect a little bit more on that kind of what makes a city good or what even is the purpose of cities i think we all bring a little bit um of a different perspective to this uh plus we're kind of in an era where cities are actively being rethought right so like big projects like keyside in toronto or even i don't know like neom uh there, there there are a lot of people making a lot of pretty big claims about what cities ought to do and what they ought to be um so i'd like to invite each of you maybe to reflect on that from your perspective uh, maybe let's start with Oska. What should cities do? 
the standard answer uh, is a micro foundation of agglomeration externalities. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> cities, but what does that mean? City, cities are great places for productivity, both at the individual level and at the firm level. No, but joking aside, I mean we have we have observed how productive any actor agent gets uh, in in a large dance environment simply because of the very basic mechanisms that the cities are are, are allowing uh, both individuals and firms to capitalize on. And these are the sharing of common resources, uh, sharing of the infrastructure that would be financially not so feasible if you didn't have the critical mass. Uh, having knowledge spillovers is what we always talk about. And I guess it's the most fun to work with in an empirical setting because there's not a standard measure by which we can measure how much people learn from each other, but we see it all the time. Um, and of course, I mean, uh, the, the pursuit of happiness lies in finding the right job for yourself. And, and that also is way more likely to happen in a large, large enough city. So it's not just the probability to find a job, but also probability to find a suitable job, a good job. But I started to grow a little tired of um, talking about the micro foundations lately. Uh, over the past few years, I've been involved in political work quite, quite a bit. After having lived abroad for almost 17 years, I started spending more time in Turkey, in Istanbul. And so many of my friends that didn't move uh, or that moved back to the country were involved in, in, in a lot of political work. And what I, what I recognize now in cities that actually was always there, but I never paid attention to is the degree of anonymity you are <laughs> entitled to enjoy. Uh, it's 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 the it's the sentiment that that you go out and you can protest with thousands of people without the fear of being singled out. That you can find always a sufficient number of people. Uh, to meet up and discuss a particular issue or campaign for a particular issue without having any prior connection to them. Um, it's it's this this type of pooling that we don't think about quite a lot. I mean, how imagine how important it is for the uh, LGBT uh, community uh, in, in historically to be in an environment where there's a sufficient number of people that. That that they could uh, that they could fight with, and the same goes for any minority, any political action. So this is this is what what's been occupying my mind more and more over the years, over the over the more recent years. It's interesting because, uh, well, speaking of Ed Glazer previous in the episode, one of the first kind of examples that he has in an early book on cities is about the power of crowds and protest and some anthropolo anthropological works on the city focus exactly on that, what's called energized crowding, the feeling of being able to connect to random people and that 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 power of anonymity. So that totally makes sense. How about you, Elizabeth? What makes cities, you know, great and what ought they do? Um, well, I think, as I mentioned before, uh, I knew that we were having an economist, so I didn't have to deal with that sorts of, <laughs> of, of aspects. So I'm going to take the the position that cities offer so many opportunities for social interaction. And I'm not a psychiatrist, but I play one on podcasts. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I've listened, maybe starting the pandemic, maybe turning 40 had something to do with it. But, you know, I've been listening to a lot of things about uh, what 
what brings happiness? How do you have satisfaction in life? And so much research by psychiatrists has told us it's not from buying stuff, right? Or accumulating things or having a new fancy house. Like that brings an instantaneous you know, rush of dopamine and very quickly wears off. But what brings sustained happiness is interaction with other people and experiences. And you have so many more opportunities for those in cities than you have. Sure, you can decouple your location, your residential location and your labor location now due to technology changes. But what if you move to somewhere remote and you have a whole heap of money, but you're all by yourself, right? You can get a really big house, <laughs> a really big car, and eventually you just want either more stuff or you're just lonely. So I think it takes us away from this stuff culture, which has been proven um, to not bring long-lasting happiness. And so I think that cities offer the potential for more sustainable satisfaction in life. I see. I see. So more about the social interaction and the, the value of community. And that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because cities are, are large communities of small communities, as some say. So, And John, what ought cities be? Well, I don't want to say what they ought to be, but I think responding to, you know, what, you know, what's been said, I, I feel like one of the things that we enjoy about cities is the kind of richness of, you know, let's call it the information surface, right? And you could be using that for business purposes or entertainment purposes or, you know, personal socialization purposes, but like there's all those stimuli around that tell you either this is a safe space for you or that person's really interested in the pitch that I'm making, or these people seem to be having a good time next to me and I quite like the way they're behaving. You know, I should introduce myself. Like, and it's it's that, you know, we are social animals. And, you know, whether it's doing a deal or meeting a mate, if you will, like all of that stuff works more effectively because of the richness of, you know, well, this person's not that into me, or oh yeah, they're really you know, vibe check. Yeah, it's looking good. So I, I think, you know, that's that for me is what makes cities work, whether what they ought to be is what arises out of all of those interactions, I guess. No, that makes sense. I guess when you think about, uh, you know, cities as a, uh, the classic example is like a permanent settlement kind of thing. It implies that they're almost fixed in a way, right? That they're, they're always kind of the same, that they're these opportunities, these crowds, and that we get together and you know, experience being in a city in, a, in probably the same way now as we did maybe in the 17 or 1800s. And I guess hearing you talk about it, the the power of these crowds or these opportunities, these it sounds like a, a very kind of modern take on what cities are. I guess if you could reflect a little bit on how is the city changing? How are we kind of getting different things out of cities now? Or are we? You know, one of the one of the books that first year geography students love to diss uh, without having actually cracked the cover is, uh, you know, the Francis Karen Cross uh, Death of Distance book. And there's a lot of stuff in there that you're like, oh, yes, the Internet will make us will increase world understanding, which, well, you're like, no, that didn't quite work. But one of the things that she writes is about kind of cities becoming more social. And I think that the that effect was happening, I think the pandemic accelerated that trend. So in other words, because you can now, in theory, you know, enough bandwidth and other stuff permitting work from anywhere, you come into the office in a way to socialize, you come in to 
meet clients or potential clients or vendors or stuff. And like, and to kind of reinforce those connections. So yeah, so there's a lot in Death of Distance. It's a bit, bit, bit dated, but actually I don't think the fundamental thesis of like, this is the way CDs are going. And it also, I think, helps to explain a bit why, you know, there seems to be so much conspicuous consumption happening in cities. I mean, there are obviously many other things going on that, are, that help to explain that. But I think it's that, you know, people coming to kind of, in a sense, consume the social atmosphere and participate in it is, is, is a major factor, you know, when they're able to. I would agree with that. Um, I think if you look at the statistics, and I wish I had beforehand, but, you know, spending on experiences and consumption has seemed to risen quite a bit over the past few years because, again, people crave these things. So maybe the function of cities has changed to accentuate these uh, interactions and the consumptions of things that you get in cities that you don't necessarily um, get other places. So I would concur with that. And we can also see, you know, if we bring in research, just besides the fact that I like living in these places, um, the demand for living in neighborhoods that have lots of urban amenities, walkability, living close to coffee shops, living close to light rail, it's still quite a bit, people place a high premium on those, right? So they're, so my argument, I think to Rachel, before we even started talking here, um, that the reason why cities are so expensive and these neighborhoods are so expensive is because people crave them. They want them. They desire them. Um, so it's not that they're bad. It's that they wish there was more of them, right? And so cities have become so expensive because people would like to live in them, but maybe we have too many constraints on building and there just isn't enough housing to house everybody who wants this. Or maybe we have a scarcity of all the good stuff in cities, the neighborhoods that are walkable, that have all of these cool vibes, like there's a reason why those neighborhoods are so expensive and not everybody can live in them because we don't have enough of them. I, I quite agree with the fact that the, the pandemic delivered an outcome that we did not initially, well, that wasn't initially expected so much. The idea was that, okay, so people's willingness to commute for, for most of the European cities, at least uh, very sharply attenuates after something like 45 minutes. And if you have to do that only a couple of days a week, uh, or, or even less so, maybe this is going to then allow people to move away from cities and enjoy these like big spacious uh, lifestyle. But, but what we have seen so far is that people started demanding way more from the neighborhoods that they live, um, more urban amenities, more spaces to work, more spaces to socialize. So this could have been a very good thing if it didn't coincide with a quite unfortunate macroeconomic uh, situation we ended up with. I mean, the high inflationary environment that we observed in almost all countries, some um, suffered more than others, of course, meant that most of the assets lost their attractiveness as an, as an investment and everybody rushed to real estate. I mean, that's real estate economics 101, right? And if you have a high inflation, inflationary pressuring environment, you will see uh, a disproportionately high demand for, for, for real estate to preserve the value of whatever money you have. So um, it is such an unfortunate thing that happened um, during a period where people could enjoy living in the city center in, in dense neighborhoods. Uh, we ended up with having a, a, a larger than ever affordability crisis. You know, in London, it feels like 
the places that came out quite easily from the pandemic were where you had a local high street that was reinvented and was reinvented by, you know, some of the kind of pound shops and stuff went away, the betting shops and were replaced by kind of pop-up cafes and things. And, 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 but you, you had something to build on. Whereas if you were in one of those, you know, as planners would talk about like those non-places where there is no center, there's maybe a parking lot surrounding the train station and not like a little, you know, a bunch of shops that are right there. You know, those places, there was no potential to gain from people's kind of working from home more and stuff like that. And, um, you know, but what I saw kind of more downtown in London is some places came back very quickly, kind of down around Kings. I went there once. I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of people here kind of down on the Strand and that area. Whereas where Casa was on Tottenham Court Road, which is kind of primarily sort of shopping or, you know, um, and now it's a lot of the kind of old um, computer shops have gone and been replaced by high-end furniture shops. But that place was, you know, it was still dead quiet around our office. And it was very kind of lit. Certain places came back very quickly. And I think those were the places that had something to build on that brought people there to do something. And if you were just kind of a place that people transited through, then, yeah, they're either going to be at home because that's a lot cheaper and more pleasant, or they're going to be going out somewhere to do to you know to do something whether it's for a meeting or the theater so those kind of non places i think suffered allow me i'm i'm sort of the sci-fi nerd in the in the three group here uh for the podcast so it sounds like everyone is picking up on cities becoming more play, like playgrounds than than workplaces and and ultimately i mean the, these things work themselves into form and the structure a little more slowly than immediate changes so maybe one year is not but it, if we take this trend seriously and we think of what it you know what would cities look like in 10 years 20 years is this a, a place where everyone goes to have a great time and and maybe just once a once a week and or or what what does cities look like if if we continue on this path i think i i i see this increasing demand for urban amenities at the neighborhood level but at the same time, it's becoming very difficult to find staff for these places because the very people that are working in cafes and, and shops are not able to afford living in these neighborhoods so that they themselves have to commute a very, very, very long way. And sometimes that, that actually cost of commute becomes so prohibitively high that they choose to stay out of employment at, uh, or, or move elsewhere to a smaller city where they can you know, uh, where they can make it work. Um, so I think what will determine whether this demand increase we observe for urban amenities due to the ability to work wherever we want will have a long lasting, a permanent effect in the urban outline, in the urban form, will depend a little bit on how we will arrange the housing for, for all, not only those that are enjoying the amenities, but also those that are offering them in terms of in terms of labor yeah possibly um you know some of the mid-sized cities i also listen to another obviously listen to a lot of podcasts but yours is my favorite um <laughs> some about you know how great salt lake city has become as an example of kind of a mid-sized city where maybe the big cities reach a point where um you know eventually becomes the size of the city and the restrictions on growth make it prohibitively expensive to live in so some other cities are kind of absorbing that and 
creating these urban amenities that are a little bit more livable. So maybe the number of kind of cool cities will increase and it doesn't have to be just concentrated in a couple really high, really large cities that not everybody can live in. No, that does make sense. I think just the other day, um, Richard Florida was out with a new article in the Harvard Business Review about meta cities and this premise that we're, we're moving to these networks of cities that all kind of work together in this way you describe. We're going to have more cool cities. Uh, it seems like John... Uh, <laughs> yeah, might, uh, I, I, I do want to comment on that because, I, I mean, I wish I had his gift for branding things. Um, but, yeah. you know, the my PhD, 2011-ish, working with BT Telecoms data from 2008-ish, and one of the things I was looking at was kind of the intensity of international calling by area, right? And so, firstly, it was very hard, like no one had ever really been able to look at those flows, but also, you know, there's there's just a, you, you know, being able to look at them at scale. So not just, you know, looking within London, but I actually looked across the entire kind of greater Southeast. So London, East of England, Southeast of England, you know, obviously places like the city of London, intensively international, but on a per capita basis, uh, the most international uh, location in the greater Southeast was, it wasn't Slough, but it was, I can't remember now, it's probably Maidenhead, something like that, right? So <laughs> like not even Heathrow. So um, that's because of the, essentially the tech industry that's kind of spread in that arc between kind of Reading and Maidenhead. So you've got your Oracles, your Microsofts, and all of those um, kind of classic big tech. And, you know, what it is, is the executives fly in from Silicon Valley. They don't want to travel all the way into London. They want to check in on the office. So they'll get in a car, go to the office in Reading, and then, you know, go in and probably stay in the city tech, have their meetings with other chief, chief execs. So I, I think the the idea that the even this idea of the meta city, great branding, it's not new. And I think that's where kind of the long perspective really helps. Like these things, you know, these things have been happening for a really long time. And um, I think it's helpful to kind of put that in perspective. Yeah, but are we maybe on the cusp of having to do things differently? I mean, so I could make a pitch for, you know, cities sucking, uh, but you know, the problems that are facing cities, and I think we'll get to that. But we also have to fundamentally change the way the way we do business and the way we do cities and the way especially we do mobility. So how much of this sort of mobility is actually, especially the physical mobility is premised on ways of living that that are not sustainable, right? Or not. I mean, are we just gonna keep doing the same things that we've been doing for the last 50 years until something really catastrophic happens? Or are we actually going to decide that we don't need to move around from city to city for small periods of time for small reasons as much as we have been accustomed to. I mean, it's partly mobility. I guess what I'm thinking is we have lots of rules and assumptions about cities and I'm not sure, are they all going to continue holding or are we going to see lots of changes? John? Yeah, I mean, I'll put my hand up just because I think everyone else is still thinking and I will therefore just shoot my (laughs) mouth off. I I mean, so so the first thing is, is the, the kind of communications technology seems to generate travel, right? So Danny and I worked on an article in Google Docs without ever having met, but that stimulated the desire to actually meet, right? So, you, you, you know, so there, there, there is, on, so on one level, the more we use telecommunications, it doesn't substitute, it just stimulates. What changes is what 
in a sense, qualifies as important enough for us to go in person versus being able to substitute the technology for that. Sure, but is that going to change? I guess my question is like, that's that's a very early, that's, I mean, that's a, I don't even know what the period is, but it's an up till now way of thinking. And I don't know if so it's a forward looking, <laughs> it's so 2023, <laughs> like, I don't know. Or, or is that just me thinking that like, we're really going to see changes in what we should, what we're able to justify doing in terms of mobility? Because that has huge implications for cities. I, I guess I would say cities are actually very sustainable in terms of transport, right? Like I cycle to work most days, which I couldn't do if I lived in the suburbs of any American city. You know, I could do it when I lived in Brooklyn and, and cycled into Manhattan. Um, so in that sense, you know, in metro systems, you know, even BRT, if you want to, if, if, if you kind of don't have that history of, of, of major infrastructure projects. Um, in terms of the kind of global travel, I, I guess, you know, we're talking about cities and then there's politics, like big picture politics. And I, I, I think if they brought in next year, a, I don't know, a carbon emissions cap per person, what we would do is firstly, I'd think very hard about which conferences I went to, but I'd still go to conferences, right? Like I'd be like, oh, I'll do more local ones, but I'd still go because they're valuable to me. I, I might, you know, and I might go, do I do the family holiday or the conference travel? I'd probably go family to be honest, but, um, you know, or try to combine the two so that I can just travel once and, you know, put that against my carbon budget. So I, I guess saying the cities change, I think that's a function of politics. Are those things sustainable? Well, that's politics. Cities by themselves are inherently more sustainable than most other spatial configurations that I can think of, I guess. But Oske has something to say, I think. No, I, when you guys are talking, um, I, I had this picture from 1999, uh, Dickon and Lloyd. Uh, location in space there were these things that they were using as desire lines if you remember if you remember the book so i i feel like we are traveling more not less but shorter distances um and certainly like this regional integration matters that are so 1990s now may come back uh, if we will add the sustainability element to it um, I don't have less appetite for moving around personally, uh, and I'm looking around and I, I, I see a quite similar trend uh, among most of my peers. It is just that I do not have the same appetite to travel across the ocean for a conference, but I want to go to Newcastle and visit Rachel Moore, and I want to come to Liverpool and visit you guys. And and I, I guess that can be facilitated by ways that are far more sustainable than what we have done before. And if um, if that can somehow uh, that that can translate into more regional integration and, and infrastructure investment. Um, I, I don't see cities posing any any further problem than being actually a solution to some of the sustainability issues. Just to Elizabeth, you have thoughts? Yeah, just yeah. to wrap up on this, this point, I mean, when you were talking about do we need to do something different, like is there some modern city or something else? And I'm thinking, um, you know, we're talking about interaction and mobility and living in the most urban neighborhoods. And those are the oldest neighborhoods. Like we need to go back, you know, 1790 is cool now. <laughs> it's not, you know, like those are the most both sustainable, efficient, as John was saying, you know, there's all this hoopla around 15 minute cities, but 
just, it's just called a city, you know, just by nature of me living in a city, when I'm at work, I can go pick up my prescription across the street at the pharmacy. I can go to the grocery store and I take the train home all within 15 minutes. It's just called living in an old city, right? It's not a new, new concept. So I would say bring back the 1790s. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, well, we're going to slowly cruise towards the end of this episode. And we want to end on a happy note because it's a holiday special. But as you know, narratively speaking, before we can have the nice happy ending, we have to do the the climax, the narrative climax where everything falls apart. So let's talk a little bit briefly about what is not working in cities, because I think it's really important to highlight where we are right now um, and some of the some of the issues that we see as being maybe the most important. So maybe, I don't know, if each of you could just say one or two areas where you think we really face some pretty big challenges where cities are concerned. So a couple of things, of course, in uh, maybe these are unique to the U.S. and they, they certainly get a lot of press attention. So post-pandemic, uh, when everybody was isolated and staying home and we have such levels of inequality, violence started to uptick after years of decline. And we certainly see that in, in Philadelphia and other big cities. So levels of gun violence in particular. Um, concentrated in certain neighborhoods is concerning. This year, it started to tick down a bit, which I think is promising. Um, I don't think that is just a function of cities. I think it's because we had to shut down all of those things that we just talked about that are good for uh, human nature and the social interaction. So I'm hopeful. I know we're supposed to be the climax here, but I'm hopeful that these trends can continue their way down. Um, also in the U.S., you know, the levels of inequality in cities is when, especially when, when I personally moved back from living abroad in the Netherlands and then landed in Philadelphia, just traveling from one end of the city, observing levels of inequality, I found to be particularly jarring. So I don't think that in the U.S. we have an acceptable kind of social safety net of what we was would be acceptable living conditions. You know, are we willing to chip in and say, you know, this is not acceptable. We need to all chip in and elevate the bottom somehow. So poverty is another big thorny issue that is facing cities or is more evident or visible in cities. More people can see it. Uske? The the prediction that cities can, not only can actually, will grow larger than their optimal size has been around since the 70s. It's just that the empirics did not prove uh, that that prediction until now, I guess. Uh, so now we started seeing perhaps it's possible to express the point uh, at which we can call the quote-unquote opt- optimum optimum city size. There's some element of, sort of this quadratic relationship between um, density and all other good things that we've been talking about, particularly social interaction, I think, because you don't want a suburban lifestyle that you don't want... Ex- excessive clustering either you still want to know people so you need to you cannot be all that anonymous but you need to have a sufficient number of people in the cities for that kind of community to exist uh, that allows for social interaction but i think w- what 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 really is 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 the biggest problem and, and i and i resonate a lot with elizabeth there that the regulations that govern cities do not really take into consideration the fact that the growth rate and the growth rate in density are two different things. So most of the modern cities become less dense as they grow. 
and that is and that is that is the problem uh, almost everything we praise about cities is not about the sheer size of the city but it's about the density and if we will allow cities to grow but not in the way that they deliver these nice very nice things um, that that will cause only further problems for pretty much everything we, we have discussed so far from affordability to sustainability uh, so I, I guess it needs to yeah I mean urban policy needs to be more data driven than than ever yeah John what about you um I, I'm gonna take a completely different tack on this and say I think the problems that cities face are not caused by cities they're caused by failures of capitalism and I, I think I I never thought I would be in the position of being somebody to say this, but like, it feels to me like modern capitalism is broken for anyone who's outside of the kind of knowledge economy, right? Like, and it's barely working for some people in the knowledge economy. I mean, all of us as academics, you know, making decisions about, you know, can you live in London? Can you not? I, I mean, that's, you know, we're already like doing well, but barely making it. And then at least in the UK, and I think to you know, to some degree, and you know, across the rest of Europe, you've got huge swathes of people underneath that who are maybe not in the kind of abject situation that occurs in American cities, but who are really, you know, really struggling and really hurting as a result of these different multiple failures of policy that originate in this sense of, well, we can't do it that way because then all the wealthy people will leave, or you know, we can't reimagine, we can't reimagine the. The connection between people and the state to provide these kind of services at a level that would allow my barista to make a decent living um you know while also making you know while also doing coffee which i like to continue you know I, I think that's the problem for me and that's the thing that will trip cities up it's it's just that politics is not working yeah Le levi do you have something i i have become really sensitized to issues of housing quality and affordability uh, just having seen so much, practically speaking, in, in some of the work that I've done uh, with the Living Rent Commission. And I, it, it strikes me as quite challenging when a lot of people's kind of forward financial planning and retirement and, and net wealth building is premised on the idea that their residence increases in value year on year on year. And that's the, that's the primary store of people's wealth and savings over their life. And it, I just don't know how we can have cities that work for people and have houses that work for banks, if that makes sense. I, I'm not sure that that equation is going to hold up in the future, but I don't know what to replace it with. I think there's a lot of different models that a lot of cities are exploring uh, to, to, to kind of de-commodify housing in these ways. Um, but but I, I do think that that's a, a pretty big challenge that nobody's really grasped that nettle yet. Um, but yeah. that's my, my main concern, I guess, for cities going forward. Yeah, when I was thinking about what we should do a holiday special episode on... Um, we like to do cities because people like to listen to stuff about cities and people like to talk about cities. But I also just came back from San Diego from a conference and Elizabeth was there also. And um, I went for a few runs as I usually do. And I've, I've been to, I think, probably five U.S. cities this year, usually for conferences. And they're not, they're not great. 
And they're not great for walking around in, in a lot of cases. So the things that we would just like to be able to do in cities and, and, and maybe it's a little bit about safety, but a lot of it is sort of is, is, is basics. Like, can you actually walk down the sidewalk or are there people living on the sidewalk? And we could talk a lot about the sort of the, the causes. And a lot of this has to do with inequality, the way cities are funded, the decisions we've made around healthcare and mental health care and housing, uh, and so that's a piece of the conversation. But for me, sort of the impetus behind this episode was thinking, if those things don't change about cities, we're going to have huge problems. I mean, it's an inequality problem and it's 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 terrible for the people who are not able to thrive, but it's also that people will just not want to go to cities anymore. And that made me think, I wonder if we're just is is it that cities always experience the sort of roller coaster of being attractors, you know, sort of the pushes and the pulls. Like we have periods where everyone wants to go to cities and that's where everything is happening. And then we have periods where really y- you don't. And I don't know. I was sort of wondering if maybe we're about to enter into a period where cities are just they're on the down downswing. And I think when I emailed all of you, I said it's like Superman, right? It's 1970s New yeah. York City. Yeah, it was good. I, uh, well, John said something along this line, but I will share this quote of Jane Jacobs that I like very much. When a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. So I, I think these types of downfalls we observe in cities, they, it's a bit cyclical. Uh, I, I really okay. am quite, I, I really am quite worried about what I observe in some of some of the cities I visit recently uh, and some of the stats that, that I, I, I play with. But it, it I also know um, empirically so that it can't go on forever. So I'm, I'm, uh, that's my hopeful holiday yeah. for today. <laughs> well, that's good because it's time for us to be hopeful and excited. And now is the part where we say like some awesome stuff about cities. And I feel like it's been so much awesome stuff about cities. But I don't know if we just wanted to go around... I'm going to start with Elizabeth, but I'm going to land on you, Danny. So you're going to have to say something positive and awesome about cities. And you too, Levi, at the end. But, <laughs> but I'll start with Elizabeth. Well, I, I feel like I've been saying positive things this whole time. because You I've have. Listening <laughs> to all these positivity podcasts. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I grew up outside of New York City in the 1980s and 1990s. And I can categorically say that cities are better, far better now than they were then. And so yeah. maybe there's a narrative, maybe in because we compare things to, uh, I don't know what, <laughs> you know, all of our perceptions are based on some comparison of an ideal. Um, so I think that cities have been improving. I think that they are still popular. I went and I got some data from the, the US census to, to back myself up since this is also a data podcast. And indeed, Over the past two years, U.S. metro areas have grown by 0.4%. Micro areas grew by 0.1%. So metro areas are still popular. People still want to live there. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, if cities are not doing well and we have these issues of people experiencing homelessness, that's not a city's problem, right? And maybe it's visible in cities, but that's a whole society's problem. So, you know, if cities are not doing well, again, where, what places are doing well? Do we want to make the case that rural areas are thriving right now? I'm not so sure, you know? Yeah. What is the place that everybody's like, that's it? So 
I think that we all need to listen to these things that I've been listening to where we search for these <laughs> small moments of, of joy and happiness and, and gratitude. And you'll find them very often in cities with these little bits of interaction, just a simple smile with people, just acknowledging, oh, that's pretty neat, or I had a really great cup of coffee, or somebody's reading a cool book. Um, so I think these small moments, instead of focusing on the big glaring negatives. Fair. John, how about you? By almost every measure that we could think of, 1970s New York was not a place to be, right? Except that we look back on it as it, it is also the time when people were creating lots of art and there was lots of creativity happening there because it was cheap, because nobody else wanted to be there except the artists kind of thing. And, and, and finally they could afford to be there. So I think even if we are entering a period of decline, my view would be it's probably, you know, and I, I, on one level, I don't really want to live through the crime uh, if, if that's what happens to London. But at the same time, it will it will create new opportunities for cities to do yet new things and, and to reinvent themselves again. Um, hopefully we can find a way to moderate both the up and the down so that what, what we get is our places that work for everyone. And I think there is stuff happening if you will, locally, um, whether that's kind of the neighborhood scale or the city scale where people are trying to support that, they're often being kind of undermined by the national scale. Um, but, you know, if we were ever to get the, these different levels of government all pushing in or pulling in the same direction, I think we could do amazing things. I, I love being in cities. I grew up in a large city. I It was a painful experience for me to move from Istanbul to a smaller city. I always seek for the pulse that, that I I, um, I am so destined to enjoy, I feel like. Uh, so so I, I really do hope the cities will be, will be doing great in the future. Maybe just one thing that can be in addition to everything that's been said, uh, which I agree with, is that we may want to start thinking about a smaller spatial scale uh, if we are trying to isolate the problems and solve them. So I'm far more interested in, in neighborhoods and neighborhood problems than cities these days. And, and that, that could be a way to go. Uh, so start sorting neighborhoods one at a time and see what it means for the city at large. All right. All right, Danny. Okay, I think I'm, I might combine my dooming and booming Excellent. statements since I, I passed on the other one. And I think something we haven't talked a lot about and, and perhaps a reflection of what everyone else is doing, which is sort of conveniently ignoring it. I mean, climate change, I think, is going to change things a lot more than we, well, than we want to believe or that we want to realize. I mean, there's very little evidence otherwise. And it's one of those cases that people say, yeah, that will happen, but it's, it's not now. So maybe... <laughs> something to worry next year but the next year is pretty much here and I, I read this book early this year the nomad century that basically says every place south of england and north of south africa is pretty much doomed for the next uh, 100 years so we're gonna have to figure out how to move most of the people who live there somewhere else that that is uh, a bit safer or, or or more amenable to to human life and so that my doom is <laughs> part of the statement uh but maybe, you know, we always think of the legacy of having to build in on, you know, having to, to fix the way cities are because they were they were done wrong in the past. And you always talk about how hard it is to retrofit suburbia and so on. Maybe we don't have to because we'll have to make up a lot of cities from scratch in, in other places. And there's a lot of really exciting opportunities. And I think my version of Elizabeth's 
self-help podcasts have been reading a lot of sci-fi and there's a lot of uh, hope in 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 that literature to, to what the future can look like and what we can make of it so you know here is to being a bit more boomer about that than doomer excellent levi and i i totally think that that's right that the, the i am actually very excited about the future of cities i think the one thing that i think is the best for me at least is that Cities are the places where people are getting together to create change. You can really see that over the last couple of years, that's really the site of lots of collective action around the world. Um, and I think that there are, there's a, a growing kind of importance and recognition, especially among younger people, among politically engaged communities, that that's where stuff can happen um, at city level interventions and policy. And, you know, even more broadly, cities as a space for political action, I think. It's really clear to me that that is a bright spot in in how cities are going to be involved in the future. So I'm very hopeful that cities continue to play host to all that kind of great community building, organizing, and action. How about you, Rachel? Thankfully, we're out of time, so I'm not going to be able to sit around and moan for for minutes about all of the things that worry me at night when I wake up. But that said, I love traveling to cities, right? I complain about them. But I've been to lots of them and I continue to go to them. And I think about all the things I really love about cities that are thriving. And, you know, London is a really good example. Paris is a good example. But there are lots of smaller cities that are great examples where you have this sort of mobility and this mix of lots of different kinds of people with lots of different kinds of backgrounds and what you get in terms of restaurants and things to do. And just, I don't know, just hearing what's going on around you. Interesting interesting clothing to buy, interesting everything. And so I, I do like cities for the way that it brings so much together in one place to experience and explore. And I'm especially grateful that you all had so much positive to say about cities because it's, it's good for me because I tend to focus so much on the negative. And it's really nice to hear, hear the positive and especially hear some optimism that's it. We've sort of come to the end of our holiday episode here. And um, one thing that I wanted to say was that this is one of, well, this is the first time we brought guests onto an episode. So we're sort of curious how that works for the listeners, um, especially since we've done this in a virtual setting. So we're all staring at a Zoom screen with our headphones on, talking to each other. So if occasionally we talked over each other, or it wasn't really clear, it, um, what was going on is because we're trying to manage this remotely, which is not the way we think cities work best. But <laughs> I guess maybe it works well for podcasts, but we're curious what you think. I was thinking as I was talking that one thing I'm noticing once I pay attention is that right now I say the word fair a lot. So my New Year's resolution is going to be to stop saying fair. Um, but you can let us know what you think. And you can do that by emailing us. We have an email account. It's called the glad podcast, all one word at gmail.com. And, you know, if you're feeling generous this holiday season, one thing you could do for us that is no cost at all is to give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to your podcast because we live in an algorithmic world, it turns out. And the more positive reviews and the more five stars you give us, the more likely it is that other city lovers or data lovers or geography lovers are going to come across this podcast. And hopefully by the time they come across it, we'll have, we'll have ironed out all the wrinkles. We'll be experts at this. It'll be great to listen to. But you could really help us if you, if you like what you hear. Um, it's super helpful. And we've heard from some of you about episode ideas. And we're really keen to hear more ideas from you. We're already planning what we're going to be doing in 2024, so keep those ideas coming. And for that, goodbye, and we're glad you're here.